A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Kia ora and welcome back to the new Tuesday podcast with me, Tim Bat. This series features a bunch of chats I was lucky enough to have with the people who made this brilliant new comedy. New Tuesday is in cinemas in New Zealand from June 16th and in Australia from June 23rd. It'll be available on streaming platforms soon too. In this episode, I speak to New Tuesday's subtitler, UK comedian Julia Davis, and the film's music supervisor, Karen Rachtman. Karen is generally considered the most sought-after music supervisor in the world. She managed to score a role working on the music for Quentin Tarantino's first feature, Reservoir Dogs, and then went on to do the soundtrack for Pulp Fiction, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, Clueless, Boogie Nights, Office Space, and literally dozens more movies. Julia Davis is one of currently two sets of people subtitling the film. So effectively, she wrote all the dialogue for the Nude Tuesday that I saw and is being released in New Zealand. Julia is a beloved and BAFTA-winning British comedian who you might know from her roles in Love Actually, Phantom Thread, or her own TV shows, Nighty Night and Camping. So Julia, could you tell me about this project? How did this start for you? How was this brought to you? Um, It was brought... Brought, not bought, brought, because I am a massive fan. Well, I was a massive fan of the Breaker Uppers. And so I think I, yeah, so I don't know if I initially contacted Jackie and Madeline, like quite, I think I did quite a while ago. And then we would chat a bit by email. Um, I think they even wrote to me once saying they wanted to do a film about mermaids and that's all that's all they had and I, I just said I'd love to but I also don't have any ideas whatsoever but anyway it was a kind of always a hope that one day we might somehow work together and then um yeah just got this got this email saying we've done this film it's in gibberish uh how do you feel about having a go at the subtitles and I just said oh yeah of course you know and then they sent the film and so I watched it with obviously nothing at all but the made-up language and uh, and sort of went, okay, so you can tell a story clearly visually anyway, but, um, yeah, I'd love to have a go at this. And so, so you didn't receive any instructions whatsoever. It was, it was simply, we would like you to do this, and then yeah. some amount of time later, here it is, have fun. Yeah, I mean, it was also they explained to me that I wouldn't be the only person doing subtitles, there would be other people as well. And yeah, but it was basically just go for it, have free reign, do what you want. Um, and uh, and they also said it would only probably take me a, a couple of weeks to do it, which was absolutely untrue. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. It's such an unusual process, but you are, you're writing a feature film. Yeah. I kind of didn't realise that until, you know, a couple of months in. I thought, oh, yeah, it's kind of like writing a film. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. So talk talk me through the process. Like how how long did it take and how many times did you have to keep watching the film and did you sort of write things in and then it wouldn't make sense later or how did you go about it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, to start with, I did a sort of weird thing where, you know, you listen to this sort of made up language and I would hear, particularly when it was Jermaine, I would hear sort of like, it felt like he was going something about frogs and certain sounds that, so I was going with the real sounds, but then I was writing such weird surreal stuff that it was just I thought oh shit this isn't going to work so then I would try and find a scene that I just really liked I did it in a really kind of collagey hodgepodge way and I'd sort of go I like this scene I'll try some jokes here or I'll try this or try that I, I got really tangled up with all the the time codes of it all and like trying to make ideas fit to the amount of words coming out of their mouth or, oh of course you know, I, it didn't even occur to me but of yeah, course, that, you that sort of just... have to have a line that is roughly commensurate with the syllables of gibberish that they've said. Exactly. Yeah. And also, like Jackie said, you know, like they've sort of from, from I don't know, what they've shown other people, not of my stuff, but in terms of subtitles, there's a sort of almost an average of around five to seven words on screen at a time for an audience to be able to take in. So, um, you know, if I'm trying to construct some really long-winded joke or something, then it's not going to work. So... There was a lot of going back and forth and um, certain scenes were a lot more difficult than others or fun than others. Like uh, I remember the opening scene where he's Bruno's looking at the laptop. I think there's sounds of gunshot and stuff. And like, you know, I remember trying to do jokes about him going, oh, that's the best stag weekend ever or how much he, I actually can't now remember what I did put, but I don't think it was that. I think it might've been to do with Hitler. I can't remember, but it was like, it was endless variations. And that's that's also one of the things I found really hard was to stop kind of trying out different ideas. Yeah. And, and settling on anything and going, well, okay, well, this let's stick with this now. I mean, there was a point early on where Jackie said, you know, you could, you could really, like, you could pretend it's another planet or something. You could do something about that. But, I mean, yeah, I couldn't see a way to make it go that far away from what I was seeing. But... I would sometimes get really like, oh, I'm sure I could come up with a better joke or something around that, or I don't know. It's it's a and it's such an amazingly interesting way of of doing something. How did you find that process of having to adopt, adapt rather your comedic voice and rhythms to fit in that sort of five to seven words on screen at a time? Yeah, I was kind of nervous about my style or whatever because you know it is quite extreme and but luckily they're so they were like just go for it and you know do what you do and but I I was aware of obviously it's quite a moving film and it's got some really sad bits and I did want to try and do that properly as well and um yeah and it was kind of just fascinating thing to do I remember Steve Coogan like when I was writing 99 he used to say you know, less is more, less is more, you know, and, uh, but I, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't sort of t- tone it down or, or kind of, um, they're just stop. different approaches, right? I mean, his, yeah. his characters yeah. are, are a product of that comedic philosophy, but that's, I don't yeah. think that's the only path to get, um, get a great laugh yeah, out of people. Yeah. Have you seen the finished, um, product of anyone else's version of the film? No, 
I'm so dying to see. I mean, first of all, because I don't even know clearly the entire thing, as in, like, did Jackie in the first place write an actual screenplay? And then I know that there are several other subtitle writers, aren't there? So, no, I, ha- I haven't seen anything. What I can't imagine in my head is what it would be like to watch this thing without the context of dialogue because you provided me with a fully complete film by by having yeah. the story fully written what was it like for you to watch this movie which was like you know in the can and mixed and color graded i assumed yeah. and like a finished product but there's, yeah. there's there's no dialogue in spite of all these characters talking what did it, what was it like when you first watched it yeah really bizarre like really sort of absorbing and weird and like I watched it loads of times to sort of go what is this and like what um yeah just a very very strange experience and also I would get ideas sometimes where I'd go oh could there be like a narration bit can I do a bit of narration or can I do this or is it fully edited could you sort of chop that bit and just move that you know all that stuff so yeah really it really weird. I assume that wasn't a possibility because the other subtitlers were working at the same time as you. Oh, totally. It was, it was all, lo- no, they said it, this is all locked. This is it. You just, you know, that's, you're going to have to find a way to make that work. <laughs> the story of this film centers around mm-hmm. a couple who go on a retreat um, to a place that sort of has the trappings of a, a bit of a cult. Have mm. you through your, your creative life or your personal life, been to these sorts of things these retreats either like a, a yoga one or a creative workshop that's over a weekend in a forest or anything like that uh i've definitely been to all kinds of weird things like and i've often surprised myself that i haven't ended up in a cult <laughs> because i'm very much um, someone who's always seeking these kind of i'm really into like i'm always reading self-help books i'm always trying different things i'm currently I don't know if it's a trend there at the moment. Maybe it's been around forever. But, you know, here, you know, Wim Hof, that guy who does the cold water stuff. Yeah. You know, that there's been a program on here. And I, I remember reading about him quite a while ago. But so I've been doing all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and also like my upbringing was actually really sort of Christian. And I went to, I did go to a kind of weird uh, place in in England, there's a place called Western Supermare, which is a really, sorry to the people if anyone's listening, but it's like a really grim town. And um, and I went to a religious thing there that that was kind of felt like a cult with people almost being exorcised. Um, wow. So I, yeah, I've definitely kind of been in all kinds of strange places. And also I lived in Bath for quite a while in England, which is sort of near, Glastonbury which is all um a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff goes on there's a lot of people kind of almost every other person is a sort of therapist or or pretend therapist or you know it's a kind of world that's always really interested me actually I I feel like that's the same with Jermaine and he plays a character in this where he's he's if this is a cult he is the cult leader yeah. And I kind of suspect yeah. he comes from a similar place of, I, I feel like you can't um, write about these things and make good jokes about these things unless you do have a bit of an interest and in a bit of an inclination because yeah. it just makes you lean in and learn about that sort of stuff. Definitely. And I think, you know, for me, it is, 
uh, you know, is both something I genuinely find fascinating and will continue to seek whatever it is, whilst also seeing, you know, what I find funny always, which is like when people are being fake and phony and that stuff is just good to to make jokes about because it's kind of puncturing the pretentious whatever. But it's not to say that I don't kind of, I don't get drawn into some quite strange things. <laughs> What's the weirdest that you've been drawn into? Well, no, I'm just saying I'm quite naive. Like I'm weirdly naive. I'm sort of have a weird cynicism and trust exactly an equal amount where I'll just be sucked into things. Um, yeah, I just like, I think I'll always be like this, like trying to, trying to find some enlightenment along the way. I think that's great. I think that's called open-mindedness rather than naivety, potentially. Yeah. Um, and another big central part of this movie is, with well, the clues in the title, it's around nakedness and, mm. and naked bodies. What do you sort of make of that in this film's treatment of it? Because I think there's a lot of commentary that's sort of wrapped up in this film around how we view naked bodies and there's a bit of a sort of meta text on top of this film which is um, mm. saying some things about that. I mean, I sort of, I basically loved how the whole naked thing was done. Because I think there's a trailer or a photo where, you know, breasts are covered and genitals are covered in the photo. And I read somewhere someone saying, oh, is it going to be like that all the way through? And it, I mean, it so isn't that. And, and it reminded me in some ways of, do you know that film Together by Lucas Moodison? Like, I think I'm really going to probably insult him because I don't know. I think he's Norwegian. Anyway, it's, it's about, um, it's not about a cult, but it's almost about, it's about a woman whose marriage breaks up and then she, she has an alcoholic husband. She moves in with a bunch of people living in a house and they try and live in a sort of commune kind of a way, but really rambling about this. It, the, one of the opening shots is a woman wearing a top and nothing else. And she's just walking around the kitchen with a bush out, just kind of, whatever, but in a really casual way. And it kind of reminded me a bit of that. And I just like how it's dealt with, like they're kind of doing really normal stuff and sitting on the coach and, you know, Jermaine's arguing with his son and, you know, it, it's just, it's a brilliant line between the comedy and the kind of vulnerability of it all. And, and it is really moving, I think, when they, when they, you know, at the end as well, but also like when they're climbing up that hill, it's like, it, it's, it's kind of amazing, I think. I mean, there's no way anyone in Hollywood would be would be doing that. <laughs> no, I think you can say that about a lot of different aspects of this of this movie. Yeah. Do you yeah. see this approach of filmmaking where someone goes ahead and makes an entire film, a silent film or in gibberish, and then hands it off to someone to be recontextualized with 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 dialogue through the subtitles that they write? Do you think this is like a viable kind of sub-genre? It's not even a genre, really, of film, but sort of a method of filmmaking. Do you do you see this as being something that's repeatable? I mean, I think it is, and I think it's really, really interesting thing to do. Uh, I can't honestly see it being, like when you say a sub-genre, like it's really going to take off. I don't know why I say that. Not because I don't think it works. I just, uh, you know, there's probably more skill to what they've done 
than do you know what I mean like I, th- I can imagine some people just thinking oh yeah we could do that yeah and then like it's not as simple as that is it it's kind of kind of taken a lot of crafting and um there is a film that was made here by I don't know if you know Steve Oram he's a comedian and he made a film called R like A-A-H-H-H-H-H-H and that was all all done with kind of all the people in it were kind of making monkey sounds to communicate and that was is really brilliant as well and it was kind of like just similar like he had a story and he told them the story and then they just they just had to and and again i don't think there are any words in it at all but you totally get that from the sounds what's happening from a like comedic point of view to me it's like it added a whole nother layer that was available to make jokes because you've got the action that's happening on screen and the you can see the emotion that the actors are portraying obviously Mm. through all of those non-dialogue cues like they're still verbal their their intonation how they're moving obviously their their, their expression on their face and not all the time but I thought quite strategically from you you would throw a line that was completely against my read of what was happening on their face which I thought was just so funny it was like the setup was all of the visual information that you have and then the punchline was your subtitle which just went in a totally (laughs) other direction which to me it just it makes me think that there's a whole um approach to doing this of like a bunch of films that could come out doing it yeah no it isn't it's interesting I mean it's almost like could you honestly tell and I mean that would have been the biggest challenge and I like I say I think Jackie said at one point trying to do it on another planet and I just couldn't do that but like you know could you how different could you make it like how you know how far away from the visual thing could you make it and actually make it work is is quite interesting as a as like a challenge well I guess we'll find out yeah do you think that there's some words that are just inherently funny and again without a spoiler like I just I thought there was a particular scene where the word poncho comes up um, in a particular context that just s- slayed me. Yeah. It's like, do you think there's inherently some words that are just funny words to, to chuck in? I, yeah, I guess I do. Cause that is, that feels like, that feels universally funny, the word, the, po- the word poncho. And also I, I suppose it's again, it's poncho image with Jermaine because, you know, it's the pompous guy trying to get this kind of flimsy, thing that he will you know a sort of vanity and i don't know yeah i think you're right i think yeah certain words definitely and um i wanted to ask because i know now that there's some stuff jackie has offered and some stuff that you've put in laura Mm. who's our main character having thrush Mm. throughout the entire movie Mm. is that something Mm. that came from (laughs) julia davis's head yeah i think what happened was i put that into the first scene having tried lots of other ideas and then I think Jackie said, I think that should be a running thing. Like that can keep coming up. Um, and so, yeah, that just got woven through. And, you know, obviously that's not going to be for everyone. But <laughs> I love it because it comes up, I think, literally in the in the first scene, in the first few lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, on board. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess my final question would be, what are your what are your hopes for your version of this film coming out in the world? Have you got any expectations about how this is going to be received by I mean, planet Earth? I hope it wins some kind of Oscar or something. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just will honestly hope that people like it and they have fun and enjoy watching it. You know, like I, I, I you know, 
I do think my experience of my humour here is that it's quite niche and some people kind of love or hate it. So I can imagine that some people will hate it, but I hope it's... I hope it, I've done it justice in terms of all aspects of the film, like, because I really like it and I do honestly feel so touched that they wanted me to be involved in it. Like, so yeah, I don't know. I don't want to sound really kind of, I don't know. I, I just basically just want people to like it. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll say the bits that you don't have to then, because obviously I've seen the version that you've done and I've got to say, I, I, I really loved it and I thought it was um, so impressive that, um, with the knowledge that I have of your previous work, it feels like you took this on as being a complete film. So it's like there is such a huge amount of heart and stakes and journey and transformation in amongst all of the hilarious bits. This is not written as a collection of um, sketches where you've had to sort of like burn the plot to to, to accommodate mm-hmm. funny lines and funny concepts, but it's just a, a really great, um, complete film. Oh, that's very nice. I hope so. That's yeah. I definitely put my heart and soul into trying to make it work. So I, I'm glad that you said that. Well, I liked it. So if the rest of them Good. don't, I say fuck them. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh. Thank you so much for the time, Julia. You too. Karen, hello. Hi. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are the music supervisor of this film, New Tuesday. Yes, I am. Before we get into your role in the film, let me ask this question. You've worked with Paul Thomas Anderson on Boogie Nights. You've worked with Quentin Tarantino on Reservoir Dogs. And you, and you did the soundtrack for Pulp Fiction. Uh, Baz Luhrmann, you did the soundtrack for Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. But surprisingly, you are kind of half Kiwi. Can you tell me a bit about your connection to New Zealand? I, I wouldn't say I'm half Kiwi, but I'm, um, I'm a wannabe Kiwi. <laughs> Um, I, when I was 15 years old, my father was living in New Zealand and I, um, I was a bad kid and my mom sent me off to live with my father and I did for about a year. I went to Takapuna Grammar School and that's where I dropped out of school. Um, cause the people were so smart that <laughs> you have such a better education than us, but I really fell in love with New Zealand. And then when I was like 21, I moved back and I tried to like work in music or something or film knowing I wanted to be a music supervisor. I don't know why I thought that could happen in New Zealand. It didn't, but I knew I always wanted to come back. So I really just always felt like New Zealand's the place for me. And luckily my father was there. So I moved back to the States. I've have friends there. I've come back and forth. My family was living there my father for a bit. He moved to the States. I'm actually visiting him now in New Mexico. Um, and then I produced a movie and it was called Sweet Mickey for President and it was yeah. at the Documentary um, Edge Film Festival and I really wanted to make sure we did that festival because I wanted to go to New Zealand and then I kind of like fell in love with New Zealand again and through you know figured out a way to get back to New Zealand and um, now I am a year away from becoming a citizen. So I'm a permanent resident. Amazing. Almost a citizen, yeah. Oh, congratulations. Sweet Mickey Thank won an you. award at that festival, right? Yes, it did. Yeah. I think the, the director won best director, best international director. 
Well, congratulations to you for, for the accolades oh, you received. That's great. You're yeah. sort of a role model for high school dropouts everywhere as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think so. <laughs> and so, okay, broad question. Let's zoom out. What is the role of a music supervisor on a film? Well, it's interesting. Um, it's very different, I think, in New Zealand than it is. And I think that's changing and maybe through a little bit of my help. Um, it's always different every film, and that's why the job is great, because it's never the same. But, you know, I look at it like I'm the producer. Of course, I answer to the producer of the film, but I'm the producer of the music of the film. It's my responsibility to get the director's vision across the line, to keep the producer, keep it in budget, to get everybody what they want, come up with new ideas like you would a casting director would come up with cast. So you do the song licensing, you do sometimes the composer's deals, you do the spotting, you do, you know, from beginning to end, everything that has to do with music. I mean, this is a dream role for a lot of people. And I think people, myself included, in an earlier time in my life, I had this picture in my head of what it was, which is that you're just like this kind of music expert aficionado with this huge, diverse taste. And you get to work with these incredible filmmakers to just kind of like grab songs and put them in and make the soundtrack work, which is part of the job, I'm sure. But it, 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 I've been listening to a few of your previous interviews and it sounds like negotiation and problem solving is at least half of this role. Absolutely. Absolutely. And finances. Yeah. It's it, which is, I guess, negotiation. It definitely is. I mean, you know, there are times when I get to be creative um, but usually it's very, you know, my job is to get the director and the filmmaker's vision across the table. So I, I work for them. Um, but, you know, it's like, OK, so they think they want this composer. They can't get that composer. What composer can we get? Or, um, you know, just figuring out what composers, helping them figure out where score, what kind of score. Do we need an orchestra? You know, the budget for that or with the songs. You know, what songs can we get that's thinking in New Tuesday? That was a very fun situation. How crazy does it get trying to come up with creative solutions, maybe when you're working on a film that doesn't have a huge budget? You, you know, it, it's interesting. I try and keep myself very busy and my company very busy and diversified. So if we're working on a big budget film or we're working on an ad, the publishers and the record companies that I've just licensed songs that have good dollars, mm -hmm. you know, they sometimes really get on my team and help me go to the publisher and record company to fight the fight if they know the money's not there, which in the case of New Tuesday, it wasn't like we were spending too little money. You know what I mean? It was just like we didn't have a lot. You know, it's a low budget film still. Yeah. The idea behind New Tuesday um, is, is and the songs, they had to be recognizable. Well, tell me about that, because I know that you're so passionate about enacting the vision of the director and the filmmakers that you work with, that that is sort of your primary focus in your role. What direction did you get for New Tuesday? Did um, Aman and Jackie have a, have a desire to have really recognisable tunes? I'm pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure Road to Nowhere was on their original list. Like, that was a must-have. And there were songs that they wanted that we couldn't have. And come to think of it, I'm glad we didn't get them. Like, I really think we got the perfect songs for that film. But Road to Nowhere, instead of just going through the publisher and record company, we also had to go through the management who, you know, it turns out David Byrne, Talking Heads did a song in gibberish 
a while back. So I guess he could relate and he really loved the idea. And so they agreed to it. And that's and by having him agree to the song gave us clout to go get other songs by saying right. we already have Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads. So it made it easier for us to get other songs. And the other big ones that I noticed, you've got Zombies, Time of the Season, which is just like right. an iconic track. And Islands in the Stream. Right. Amazing. So were you able to go to the publishers and the rights holders and say, look, David Byrne's on board. And they were like, oh, okay, shit. Well, if he's on board, we better get on board. That definitely helps. But I'll tell you something. It was very funny. Oh, and by the way, like we had Jackie and Amon do a video to David Byrne, like, and they started off in gibberish, like, hi, we really love your song. This is why we want your song and everything. And they did that on a couple things. It was funny, you know, it was really cute. And I think things like that help. You have to think of like, what's going, if we can get something in front of David Byrne, what's it gonna be? They made adorable video. We got the song. Um, but it's interesting, the question you asked, like, what do you do if you can't get it? Time of the season, the publisher, I shouldn't even be saying this stuff, but the publisher denied the use, okay? For so, or the record company did not, and we didn't even need the recording, we only needed the publishing, denied the use. Yeah. So I just started, friend, you know, did my research and started friending people on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> and then, and it was like, I became like, the manager's wife and the manager or something like, you know, and just wrote to them of how important it was. And they wanted to make it happen too. You know, they didn't know that it was being turned down. So that one was a fight. And it just goes to show you, like, if you really want something, you have to do everything in your power to get it. <laughs> Hey, I, I have to ask you this before I forget to, because I don't know if I'll ever get the opportunity to talk to you again. I'm 34 years old, and I think for people my age, the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack occupies a very special place. Mm -hmm. And I was a huge, and, and still am, uh, fan of the band Garbage. Right. What is the deal with the track Number One Crush, which rules and appears on that soundtrack, and as far as I know, not on any... Um, records that Garbage have released. It's not on any of their albums. I don't think it's a B-side to anything they've released. Okay. I'm just going to remember sitting in my office in Capitol. That's, it was a Capitol act. We got that song. They gave it to us. Um, I gave it to Baz and Anton. And they liked it. And I'm trying to think. And it was going to be the single. We always knew it was going to be the single. And I can't remember i'm so sorry that i don't remember I, it you know, was a funny. long time ago people always ask me that like you know it's so funny because it's like oh it's 30 years or 25 years from clueless or yeah. 30 years from War dogs and i'm like oh and then they'll ask me like the most obscure question and i'll go oh really i didn't know that you know something like but i think um, this this also kind of speaks to what your job is right because th this is what you do for a living and obviously you care deeply about the music but you are kind of you're going from project to project to project and the yeah. work that you are putting out in the world like deeply resonates with people and stays with them and you know 20 years later i'm i'm getting the opportunity to talk to you and ask you about a specific garbage track on a specific movie soundtrack it must be kind of cool um 
Well, I'll tell you something. I remember it was like, we were just getting, you know, I mean, Baz put so many songs in that film, like in different ways. And we had different people doing different things. Like if you went through everything, it was crazy. Um, and there's so many interesting things. And I just, now I can't remember, like, it's so funny. I can have the image of being in my office and hearing the song and getting the song and not thinking about what was the record. I can tell you though, I remember about the Cardigan song, if you want to know about that one, Love Oh yeah, God yeah. <laughs> Cause that song was a failure. It didn't do anything. And I heard it and I was like, oh my God, Baz listened to this song and he loved it and we put it in. And I got slack, people were like, why do you want to put it in? It's already failed. And I was like, no, 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 that's gonna be a hit. You got it, we got to put it in, we got to put it in. And of course my position at that time on films like Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge is I was the record company. I was the soundtrack producer on behalf of the record company. So it's, even though I very much felt like I was working for Baz, sure. I was working for the record company, what's gonna sell records, you know? So I had a lot of pushback from the record company on Loveful. And I think probably one in every 10 times that I go into a grocery store, that song is playing oh yeah it like it, I, I struggle to think of a bigger hit sort of made from a movie than loveful like it was right. stratospheric it was massive um getting back to nude tuesday so um okay. maybe we should take a, a quick step back so with the right situation um for uh -huh. how you need to sort of clear songs uh and movies and games and tv shows and all those sorts of things correct me on this but you've got the sort of composition rights what are they called sync publishing sync rights yeah and then you've got the um the license that's attributed to the specific recording right, uh, right. very good song, you've right? got it down that's okay. the, they call it the master but people are changing that name so it's the you know it's the recording right so gotcha. they used to say back in the day sync and master and now it's like publishing and recording or composition you license the composition which is the writing of the song which is owned by the publisher and you or you license the recording which is performed by the artist and you get that through the record company and you mentioned just earlier that in the case of new tuesday you didn't have to go you didn't have to uh, obtain the rights for the recording or the master because um, we haven't sort of gotten into this yet but you've got a talking heads track you've got zombies you've got uh, islands in the stream these were re-recorded in this made-up language that occupies Nude Tuesday. How involved were you with that process? How did that go? Well, you mentioned, it's, it's very funny because Amon had an idea of a band to recover the songs and it was the same guys that I wanted to use too. I mean, luckily enough, which was Moniker and they're the guys from Phoenix Foundation. Awesome, yeah. And I work with them a lot as composers. So, you know, they're, they just did the covers of the songs. And I think Lucas from the band is friends with Amon or Conrad. And I'm friends with, I mean, I know them because I've, I've worked with them a lot as composers, but they were the perfect band to do with them. And then Cam, by the way, like this job in a way, New Tuesday was, it was a lot of work, but it was easier because they already had such a brilliant composer in Cam Ballantyne, you know, like, man, am I in awe of him and his score? It's so good. So he actually produced the end title song, Islands in the Stream. Sorry. So you got the rights to the songs and then and was it Cam Ballantyne who sort of worked on the these like new arrangements of them? In, in the he recording. did Islands of the Stream and we really wanted to stick to the original arrangement. Mm. 
Now with Sea of Love, we might have listened to some other, you know, different artists doing different versions because that song's been covered so many times. Mm -hmm. But we chose, um, I mean, so that was a little bit different than the, like, I think if, like, if you're listening to Road to Nowhere or especially Time of the Season, in the beginning, you don't know it's a cover. Yeah, and Road to Nowhere hits very early in the film, and so you you, you kind of right. hear the opening bars, and it is one of those songs, you know, for me, I, I saw David Byrne live, um, oh, I guess it was before the pandemic, so at least two years ago now in Auckland. God. Oh, did you see his show? Oh, my God. That was probably the best concert I've ever been to in my life. But it was the long one. It was the American. It was like yeah. they went it into a Broadway play, that one. He did it in yes. Wellington and Auckland. Exactly. Yeah, the one that got developed into um, a musical, and it was just... Yeah tremendous like it was incredible so you you, you know oh you, best you, concert ever you I hear agree. the opening bars of a song like that and and you kind of f- click into karaoke mode and you're about to sing along and then the new tuesday gibberish language comes in i was like oh my god there's just so many incredible layers of creation to this film that yeah have been put in it's, there. it's it's pretty great like i couldn't say no to doing that i i to be honest with you i begged them to have me on that movie really yeah. So how did you find out about it? What was the genesis? Um, I did a movie for Emma Slade, one of the producers. I had done Justice for Bunny King. I helped her out on it. Oh, my God. I loved that movie. Yeah, sweet movie. So I worked on that. And she started telling me about New Tuesday. And I was like, I want to do that movie. I want to do that movie. Oh, my God, it's so great. It's so great. It's so great. And I just kept harassing her. And then they had to give it to me. <laughs> great. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it takes sometimes. And, uh, and so what... So they had their list of kind of ideal tracks on there, and did it? Did did you actually manage to kind of hit pretty close to exactly what they wanted? I think I think that two of the songs that they for sure wanted: "Sea of Love" and "Road to Nowhere." I think they oh, the, were the only songs we were able to get, and I think rightly so because they love everything. Like you know, there were different songs that they wanted for the end title, and to be honest, nothing could have been more perfect than "Islands in the Stream." I yeah. think it's great, and yeah. same for "Road to Nowhere," which they did want, and "Sea of Love" works. But I think as far as time of the season, I brought them that one, and what was the other one? Maybe that's it. I don't know. Anyway, so it was, but it was a mixture, you know, of figuring yeah. it out. Um, my my final question for you, Karen, and thank you so much for um, spending the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Is you're a professional music supervisor. You're, you're one of the most sought after music supervisors in the world. Where do you? That's what my Wikipedia page says. I gotta change that. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Okay, People okay. with some very big names. Come on, you put together the, day, yeah. the soundtrack for Pulp Fiction for crying out loud. I, I, yeah, I think you're allowed to claim it. Okay, thank you. Where do you experience new music? Where do, where do you discover music from? Are you on Spotify? Are you on Bandcamp? Um, are you going to gigs? Like, is it all of the above? Like, how do you get introduced to new music? Look, it's 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 really interesting because back in the day it used to be like a full on discovery, you know, going to the CD stores and like I like the artwork or oh what's that I hear on the radio and not being there was no Shazam, you know, it was just such a different kind of approach. And nowadays I get bombarded. You know, I I I get probably 200 300 songs a day just unsolicited oh sent to me. Oh my god. So, and I try and listen to the stuff that is solicited from trusted sources. And I still listen to the radio. I still listen to other songs on 
bands on TV. I listen to what my friends are listening to. You know, I do. I'm, I, I don't search Bandcamp, which shows how old I am, and I should. But yes, I do Spotify. Um, I, but, you know, when I'm looking for a song in a film, right, or something, I reach out to all the trusted sources, all the publishers, all the record companies and everybody. I go, this is what I'm working on. This is what I'm looking for. And I, you know, with technology today, within five hours, you know, I have a thousand songs. And then me and my team, like, skim through it. And then a lot of times I'll hear a band that I love and I'll be like, oh, and I'll work on multiple projects at a time. This isn't right for this, but this would be great for this. And so, and you know, my team and I, we meet and talk about music two, three times a week. So we're just constantly on the lookout. And that hasn't dulled at all your love of music, like just absorbing so much for so long, being bombarded with so much all that time? No, absolutely not. But the only thing that I found as I get older interesting is I used to be able to listen to music while I work, you know, type or do something else. I can't like either my job is listening to music or doing my administration work. And when I'm doing my administration work, I can no longer listen to music. And my kids can, you know, like they do everything like to music. Do you think that's because of what you do for it? Like you have to kind of dedicate your brain to listening to the music or do you think this is something that's changed over time for you? Um, I think to an extent it is. I think that when I'm listening to music, it overtakes me. It's like I'm listening to it. Even if it's for work, I'm, I listen to it more you know, intently, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. than than the average person, perhaps. <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for spending the time talking to me. Best of luck with yes. the citizenship process. Okay. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Tuesday podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. New Tuesday is in cinemas in New Zealand and Australia from mid-June and will be coming to streaming platforms soon. The New Tuesday podcast was brought to you by Film Queenstown Lakes and the New Zealand and Australian film distributors Madman Entertainment. It was produced, hosted and edited by me, Tim Bad, and co-produced by Courtney Mayhew and Tyler Hislop. The music in this series are original compositions by Cam Ballantyne and covers from Monica, which appear in the New Tuesday soundtrack available soon. Or maybe now, I don't know when you're listening to this. The series is also supported by Flix, Download the Flix app to find new Tuesday session times near you and get tickets.